Welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the creative people of Austin, Texas. My intention is to have conversations that are meaningful, inspiring, and in-depth, with the goal of making a connection first with the person I'm interviewing, hopefully adding value to their life and career, and then sharing that content with the local community and potentially anyone in the world. Please share any feedback you have and leave me a rating and review on iTunes. That could help others find the podcast and inspire them to take a chance and give it a try. And if you're listening to this through an app on your phone, be sure to visit austinarttalk.com on your computer to get the full effect of each episode's webpage and to follow the links provided that are relevant to the guests and what we talk about. You can also follow me on Instagram and Facebook by searching for Austin Art Talk. This week's interview is with the executive and artistic director of the Fusebox Festival, Ron Barry. If you were listening to this before April 17th, 2018, then run, don't walk over to the Fusebox website and make a plan to see some of the fantastic artists and performances that will be happening here in Austin. And if you miss it this year, no doubt you can catch it next time. The festival has come a long way in the last 14 years, from its humble beginnings with Ron paying for part of the first year with credit cards to being an internationally recognized event. Have a listen and learn about its origins, evolution, the mission for the festival and beyond, and some previews of a few of the artists you might have a chance to see yourself. Ron also shares some very interesting stories of inspiring things he's experienced over the years. So here is Ron. Okay, Ron, thanks for being on my podcast. Hello. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) I really appreciate your time because I know you're a busy man right now. You're getting ready for the Fusebox Festival. It's true, <laughs> uh, but I'm I'm very grateful to be here and oh, love talking to people about what what I'm up to. So yeah, well, I yeah, tell the me opportunity. Tell me what you're up to, and just tell people who don't know who, who you are who you are. <laughs> yeah, so I'm Ron Barry. I'm the founder and artistic director of the Fusebox Festival. Uh, located in Austin, Texas. Right. We're coming up on our 14th edition, yeah, um, which is still feels really wild to me. <laughs> right? Uh, we, you know, we started very small, and we, in many ways, we still are very small. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we started with a budget of like five thousand dollars, funded it on credit cards, and, right. a, and a little bit of support from the city, which was great. But yeah, we had no idea we were going to do this twice, much less 14 times. Yeah. I had no idea this was going to become my job. Yeah. Um, it was, so my background was in theater and film to a certain extent. And uh, I moved to Austin about 22 years ago mm-hmm. with some friends. I grew up in Houston, uh, went to school in the Midwest, spent a year in London, and then moved moved here after that. Mm-hmm. And with some friends, and we just wanted to make stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and we converted an old garage into a performance space, and we had an adjoining visual arts space. Uh, and then we did monthly film screenings. And the festival really kind of came out of that. I mm-hmm. think it was, uh, we, we had an interest in creating a more meaningful exchange across these different art forms. Mm-hmm. Even though we were kind of making theater and performance, we were really interested in visual art and interested in film and music. And we felt like often those, both those communities, but also those the artists making those various sort of things yeah. were, were kind of siloed, mm-hmm. even within our own building. And so we thought, well, what if we created a, a moment in the year where we really kind of uh, collided these different things together and created space for a more interesting exchange. And then we were also just really hungry to meet artists uh, living elsewhere. And so it really became, I guess at the heart of it, the festival became this space for the exchange of ideas mm-hmm. across art form and across geography. So even from the beginning, you were inviting people from out of town? Yeah, just oh. maybe like one person from New York that <laughs> okay. we knew and was happy to sleep on someone's couch. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, humble beginnings. <laughs> yes, yes. Why do you think there is 
a separation in the arts like that, even to begin with. I mean, where does that originate? Yeah, I, it's like, I have no idea the the history of, of that. Because when I think of the term visual art, I mean, it's like that's all the whole world is visual. I mean, that's all the world is. Like everything you see is totally. something that was imagined and created by someone. Yeah. And I also, I mean, I obviously think that like there's so many artists working today that, you know, their work is very blurry and yeah. it is interdisciplinary. And like in some ways it feels even silly to classify it as <laughs> right. such because like no shit. Like <laughs> that's how we make work. Yeah. But it feels like the, sometimes it feels like the institutions and mm. the structures and the systems around these different art forms yeah. keep us at Bay and there's different economic and financial systems, the way that like the visual art works world works versus the performing arts world works. Like yeah. the, the economics of those worlds are really different. Um, it makes me think of it like a museum typically wouldn't have a theater or performative space. Mm-mm. Yeah, I've just never even nope. considered that before. Nope. And and then they do you know, there's often, you know, it feels like particularly right now in this moment, there's a lot of museums that are interested in performance, Mm. but then it's, uh, you know, how does that performance work live in a gallery space or a museum setting? And Mm -hmm. that's a different kind of space than a, than perhaps a a theater space. And, um, how does the, uh, how does that get built in a way? How does it get created in a way? How do the audiences that are encountering that work, uh, experience it in a way that's meaningful. So I don't know. Those are all fun questions. Yeah. There's so there's like the work that maybe hangs on the wall, but then there might be a performance that you actually have to be there in person. Yeah. And it's exactly gone. exactly. <laughs> and that's really what for much of our history as an organization. You know, we've really been. At the, I think at the heart of what we've been exploring is the live event yeah. and the live situation and performance. Within that, I think we've been really interested in you know how this investigation of live performance can extend into these other art forms. Mm -hmm. And I think we've also found this kind of wonderful community of artists who come from really different backgrounds who are exploring the live situation in different ways, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether they're filmmakers or composers or theater artists or dance artists or visual artists that has really fed me and excited me. And uh, it's a, it's a space that still really excites me what kinds of things are only possible in a live situation mm-hmm. and uh, what does that have to offer today? And for me, it's, it's endless, yeah. um, but it's, it continues to feed me in a really meaningful way. But it's also, I think this is, you know, perhaps inherent to the live situation. You know, I think for most of these works that we're presenting, they mm-hmm. do require you to be present. Yeah. And so it is a hard art form to distribute as opposed to perhaps music or film, which, you know, there is a, a live experience that can be constructed around those things. That's also wonderful, yeah. but also like, you know, a new movie comes out and it can be seen simultaneously all over the world. Yeah. Um, and that's hard with, uh, with live performance. Um, yeah. I mean, you could videotape it, but yeah. it's not like being there. Most that's, yeah, that's right. You can share some of the ideas that are being explored through video and Mm -hmm. whatnot. And I think probably with, as technology continues to improve, we'll maybe be able to get closer and closer to a live experience. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But for now, at least for me, there's still something really um, special about being in a room Mm. with other people. Yeah, oh, and, I love that myself. And I, was, I don't know. I also sometimes I feel like that antiquates me a little bit. Maybe, oh, really? maybe there's, <laughs> yeah, I think there's probably some people that would feel like it's uh, there's absolutely the the potential to have a live experience mm. uh, online, and of course there is, of course. Yeah, um, yeah, but you don't want to lose touch with that live in person experience. It really ex- that really interests me and continues to really interest me and feels like it has great significance right now, also particularly in this moment that we're in in, the, in our country and mm-hmm. just feeling like I want to be in the room with other humans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's start there. Right, right. Well, I'm, th- I'm just thinking about how, you know, when you started the festival, you mm-hmm. were doing more of your own work. Now this yeah. is like your full-time job. Are you still creating your own work on the side or... Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I really, this really feels like it's, it's my work and it it feels like a big art project. And so I don't feel like I'm giving up one 
part of myself to okay. do this other thing. It just feels like a living, breathing thing that we're mm. creating each year and keeps evolving. And we keep uh, imagining what it can do mm-hmm. every year. And so that keeps it alive and keep working with new people. And so it is a, there's also kind of a porousness to it so that we allow for other voices and other Mm -hmm. kinds of ideas to seep into what we're doing. Um, And that feels really exciting and playing with the rhythm of it and the duration of it and where it happens and what kinds of things can happen. What are other things we could do with the festival? Mm -hmm. In addition to presenting artists, uh, we, about four or five years ago, we started to really look at, you know, could we use the festival as a way to look at things together as a city and Mm -hmm. our sort of first uh, project was to look at how we're developing real estate and could we imagine uh, a more equitable way of doing this? Yeah, with Think East. With Think East. And so that was a really exciting project for us for a number of reasons. Um, I think it really... cracked open some possibilities for us in terms Mm -hmm. of an organization, in terms of a festival that, you know, they're actually breaking ground as we speak on a real development that that will have like, you know, between 200 and 300 units of like real affordable housing and Mm. trails that some lifelong residents have been trying to get developed and improved for 50 years and some things like that. They were like, Oh, that's really, you know, uh, a festival doesn't have to just be this ephemeral thing yeah, that happens, say, like which is also beyond that. Yeah. Could it also be this moment to look at things together as a city and then perhaps also actually make some things together that would live mm. on after that? And that was really, I don't know, exciting to me. How does this development that's breaking ground right now further the mission of the festival? Yeah. So that's, I think... As I was saying, I think one of the, the, the things that that project in particular really kind of cracked open for us was creating this new understanding of what a festival could be or how it could live in relationship to a community or to yeah. a city. And so that's like, I mean, that's become like part of our mission, part of our vision mm-hmm. as an organization. I mean, we we really start from this place of, or this it's a stance or an opinion or a belief mm-hmm. that the arts are not separate from life. It's not like we're going to go do our thing over here. Meanwhile, life is happening over here. Right. Um, and we felt like it was, you know, kind of impossible to be living in Austin in this moment and not be uh, experiencing what was happening and with our you know, tremendous growth. And Mm -hmm. so we, in a lot of our venues and a lot of our artists and ourselves are located in East Austin. And so we are really feeling the effects of that growth and losing venues, losing venues, lifelong residents were being displaced. Mm. Uh, Mom and pop businesses were closing down, which are also really, you know, hubs of culture that have great meaning. You know, we certainly or not, it's not like we've solved it. Right. You know, great, we did it. But it did feel like we could perhaps play a role. Mm-hmm. And it's not like we were suddenly claiming to be experts in affordable housing or developers. And we're also not experts in like what any given neighborhood wants or needs. Yeah. I think what we were able to do was create a different kind of space for different stakeholders to come together and imagine something different, perhaps in a way that they hadn't before. Mm-hmm. And perhaps part of that was also uh, creating a bit of novelty uh, around this that got some attention. And like mm-hmm. we were on the, you know, like on the front page of the Statesman twice for this work we were doing around these trails. Mm-hmm. And that generated some attention, you know, yeah. and that got some money going and some, you know, some task yeah. force were created because of this. And so. I think that's important, and that speaks to another thing that we really believe in, is that we we really don't want to position ourselves as experts. Um, I think we are perhaps more adept at just creating a particular kind of space that's open, Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't really have an agenda, but that allows for people to enter into it. And think about things in new ways or creative ways. And that's exciting. Because then, like, all kinds of stuff can happen. In a way, that also gets at what we were talking about earlier about just, like, the potential of the live situation mm-hmm. and being in the room together. Yeah. That there was something kind of essential about that that I think is related to this work. Did you not 
do like hundreds of community engagement yeah, meetings and probably three or 400 meetings. Mm. And we tried to like, we didn't want to create a lot of extra work for people. You know, people have their own lives and are busy. And um, so we would, for a lot of those, we would just try to go to where existing meetings were already taking place. Mm. If there was a standing meeting at the school, let's just go to the school and like talk to people there. Um, or meet up where it's convenient for people to meet up. We didn't want to host 300 meetings and ask people to keep coming to us. And so that felt good. You know, how could we create an engagement process that matched the sort of natural rhythms of the people that we were wanting to engage with? Mm -hmm. And what did you take away from all the words that you exchanged with all those community members? Like, what is your sense of how they feel? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, f- first of all, uh, neighborhoods are complex. Yeah. Uh, there's not a monolithic right. uh, single voice. Like, people want different things. Uh, there's also, like, there's people that are very vocal, and then there's other people that are kind of quiet. And, like, it's not like one of those opinions or worldviews is more important or valid than the other, but yeah. you also kind of, you got to do the work to kind of hear both of those. But I do think that perhaps... Uh, more than anything, people were appreciative that um, they were included in a way that they typically are not mm-hmm. not included in a development. I think it was also really important to keep showing up. It wasn't like we're going to have a meeting, take some input, and then like you never hear from us again. But it was like yeah. a couple years. Consistency. Of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's hard. I mean, it's a you're dealing with large forces. Yeah. <laughs> Sure. Capitalism, uh, right? I don't know. It's and you got you're also just like the real reality of there's a lot of people moving here every day, and so these yeah. are they got to live somewhere. So there, there's a lot of big forces, and uh, like I said, I don't know that we solved it, but I, I think we perhaps hopefully created in this one instance uh, mm-hmm. a different way of going about it that felt more responsible, that felt more inclusive. I'm sure we could have done it better, but it was a it felt like the kind of work we should be doing is like, mm-hmm. I know what this looks like if we don't do anything. So let's, let's jump in or wade in and see what we learn and see what we can do. And it also thinks, I think sometimes it means you'll say the wrong thing and like you'll get in here. Yeah. You'll get in here. I got many earfuls. And, yeah. uh, it was like, Hey, that's part of the work, you know, and you just got to, listen and take it in and apologize or make a correction. And I think to participate means sometimes you'll do it wrong and uh, just take that feedback. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like you've always had kind of the bravery to do that in yourself, Um, you know, to kind of, it's, it, it fluctuated from day to day, (laughs) do you know? (laughs) Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Right. And uh, you're generally kind of wanting to come from kind of a humble position of like, I don't know the answers I'm trying to understand. Yeah, I think so. I think it's important to me as a leader of an organization. That's kind of like how Mm. what I believe in as a as a leadership style or approach that um, I don't feel like at least for me, being a leader means that I have all the answers. Um, I think again, it's kind of about often creating a space where people can flourish. Mm -hmm. And bring their own ideas and agency to the table. And I think it's also about creating, maybe this is part of that, but it's about creating a certain kind of culture. I feel like that's really important, but I, it, it is interesting. Like, like I was saying early on when we started this work, I mean, I really didn't know anything. Like I didn't know I had like a couple of <laughs> friends in New York. I didn't know anything about the larger performance world or yeah. anything. And now, 14 years later, you know, I travel all over the world and uh, I have an incredible network of artists and curators and festival producers all over. And I've seen, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of performances. And I actually do know a lot of things. Yeah. Um, But I feel like it's perhaps more important than ever to really hang on to this sense of not knowing Mm. Um, maybe, maybe that's just a way of talking about like maintaining one's curiosity of the world. But I think it's, it's been important for me and it's been important, I think for the organization. It's in a way talking about doubt, but not doubt as a thing that paralyzes you, but like doubt as a way that as a thing that allows you to 
question, question some things yeah. or crack some things open mm-hmm. uh, and go into some different places. Mm. Um, and so it's actually been kind of a helpful tool. You know, that, that is really helpful. Um, my partner of almost 10 years mm-hmm. um, is she came out of the graduate social work program at UT. And she, one of the things that she does is she works with these tools called liberating structures, which are really mm. uh, participatory facilitation tools. Um, but they're also really helpful with groups of people and like how groups of people work together. And it's really about kind of dismantling traditional power structures and tapping into the intelligence of a group of people. And we were really excited about using some of those tools in our work around Think East Mm. and work with community, uh, various communities. But a lot of the sort of thinking behind those tools have been really helpful for me as I think about, you know, what it means to lead an organization and how I want this, the culture of this organization to operate. Cause I'm not really never really wanting to be a leader and sort of a reluctant leader, but also recognizing that I am in this position and I need mm-hmm. to sort of own that and uh, accept that. And then how can I do that in a way that's meaningful, that gets the most out of the people that I'm working with. And, yeah. Um, and then how can I also just keep learning and growing, which is what I want. I want to keep you know, engaged in the world and keep uh, discovering things and learning things. And so Mm -hmm. how do we create a culture as an organization that really fosters that? So is part of your leadership role then kind of like keeping the kind of the big picture in mind? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If it's this kind of collaboration and you're kind of using everyone's brain, it it seems like you have to step in at certain a certain point and kind of make decisions. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's very real decisions that have to be made. Um, I, I don't have to always be the one that does that. Um, ah, yeah. um, there's five of us at this point. And in terms of like our artistic team, so there's myself and then Anna and Betty, who are two new curators that we brought on this year. And mm-hmm. uh, it's been just thrilling to have mm. a team of curators and like we had to bounce things off of, to share ideas. And I think the way we've been thinking about it is really kind of imagining this somewhat fluid curatorial team and it might change from year to year like next year Anna Mm. and Betty might really take more of a prominent leadership role with a festival and the next year maybe there's a guest curator that takes on a big part of it Mm -hmm. or maybe all three of us are really working on it or maybe one year Anna has this particular artistic project that she wants to really foreground in the festival while we're doing some other other side projects or Mm -hmm. other research but I like this idea that the way that we think about our festival the way we program it can be somewhat fluid and change from year to year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really smart. I yeah. think. So how long has it been that you've been working with the free model? Because initially yeah. you charged tickets. Yeah. This will um, be, I think, our fifth year of doing that. We set it up as like a three-year experiment. And mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, we were, we were at Gourmand's. Like <laughs> af- decompressing after the festival. And we were like, why don't we just like didn't have tickets. Yeah, <laughs> we're right. like, we're not making that much money from them. Yeah. Uh, what would that do? And I think we scribbled, we were just scribbling out ideas on, you know, soaked yeah. napkins <laughs> at gourmands. And we, um, but I think that initial idea, we kind of tested out in, in a smaller way the next year. And then we launched it in full the following. So it took about two years of kind of teasing out this idea mm-hmm. to really, make sure we understood the mechanism of it and how it was going to work and all the different components of it and also make sure that the messaging around it was right. I think we we really like this idea of taking a, a basic assumption about the festival. Like, how do you go to the festival? You buy a ticket and challenging that. Okay, well, mm. let's, let's do away with tickets. And what does that allow us? What does that allow for? Um, so we liked that, that the simple act of buying a ticket or not buying a ticket could be an opportunity to provoke a conversation about access and who is this work for while also talking about the economics of the work. We are really clear that we weren't suggesting the work was free to make, even if it was free to attend, yeah. and that there was a real cost to this work. And or that it had less value because it was exactly. free, it was less quality. Exactly. I think there's a lot of people that, yeah, have associations with a free event. Yeah. And we, we did want to challenge that. They're like, no, this is like some of the most interesting work in the world, <laughs> at least to us. <laughs> and it's free. And we also wanted to, you know, I think as part of that, 
uh, imagine a, a different sort of relationship with our audiences, which was less transactional, mm-hmm. um, that was perhaps mirrored our own relationship with these artists and that it's a, it's really an ongoing relationship. And a lot of these artists are exploring an idea or a set of ideas for many years. Mm. And why are we asking people to pay for it at this one moment at the box office? Mm. And, and so in a way we didn't really stop asking people for money. We just kind of shifted when and how we did it. And I don't know, so far, so good. We After the three years, we kind of took inventory and we're like, okay, this is what it's doing. Um, we've seen about a 60% increase in first-time festival goers. So mm. a lot of new people. Um, and on average, people are going to about twice as many things. So also people are like really diving in, which was, I think for me, really exciting. Because like when I think about a festival, like it's really, it's not about seeing one thing or two things. It's really about maybe seeing three or four or five different things mm-hmm. and getting this kind of interesting collision of different perspectives and ideas. And there's also like, you know, there's a lot of students in this town and most of those students are kind of broke. And yeah. so we felt like this was also a way to access, know, access this work was you're a student and you're learning. Well, look, we're bringing in artists from all over the country and all over the world. And it felt like a pity if you were only getting to see one of them. Yeah. If you wanted, wasn't there also a dynamic when you, you were paying before where you kind of had to bring in like some kind of bigger names to kind of like draw, yeah. in, get it, make it more appealing. And now it could be a little bit more of a level playing field. Isn't yeah, that true? That's a great question. Yeah. I think, you know, we've always, we've never really brought, like we're not bringing Beyonce, right, right, these, yeah, okay. you know. <laughs> yeah. But having said, even within the sort of weird world that we occupy, when we were selling tickets, we we would try and have one or two projects each year that we were crossing our fingers were going to be big ticket sellers, you yeah. know. And so yeah. that does, you know, that affects how you curate, how you put together a program. Yeah. And yeah, now we don't really have to do that. Uh, I mean, it is kind of interesting. I think we're at the point now where things are selling out so quickly mm. that we need to kind of look at some bigger venues and maybe we're back to like needing some artists that can fill some bigger oh, venues, right. but mm-hmm. we're kind of getting at it through this reverse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, just because there's demand now and we want to uh, serve some of these uh, we want to serve our audiences. And there's, yeah. it's also kind of fun. Like, there's definitely some artists who are working at a certain scale that's really large. And mm-hmm. these are artists that we have not typically been able to afford or mm. been able to bring. And so I do think that's fun to think about. Folding into our work are some larger scale projects that can accommodate more audience, but that also can capture our imaginations in some different ways. But I would never want to lose small intimate works either and works that happen in smaller galleries or Mm -hmm. smaller performance venues. I love that very personable, tangible relationship to performance. Um, Mm -hmm. It's really often where my heart lies and I would never want to lose that. But I think we could... You know, fold in some other types of projects on different types of scales. Yeah. When did that transition happen for you where you went from maybe working some other unrelated job to just doing this full time? Yeah, that was about four years in to the festival. And it kind of reached a point where it was probably going to get put to bed or I figured out a way to pay myself a little bit because it kind of reached a ceiling, Mm. like what it could be, what this festival could be. uh, And it needed more support. And we had some really generous donors who were on our board or as a board members step up to create a position for myself. And Mm. then shortly after that career, Created two other uh, positions, and that was really what we need. What we needed, and that was really like a pretty much a one-time uh, infusion of cash to help create mm-hmm. these positions. And we've been able to make it work since then. Uh, but very fortunate for them. And yeah, I wouldn't be here talking to you now right. uh, if that hadn't happened. So very, feel very blessed and fortunate. Um, Did you have any doubt about doing that? Did it feel risky to you? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly in those four years when I wasn't getting paid, you know, mm. um, and even early on, it was still bumpy. And yeah, it's it's hard. And like, I certainly also wasn't making that much money. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, so, yeah. Not getting rich doing this. Right, yeah. So it's, yeah, and cash flow 
still is very you know, wonky sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it is hard. It's not for the faint of heart, but it is super fulfilling at the same time. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity to continue to invent this thing and mm-hmm. continue to remake it and rethink it. And I don't know, kind of see where it goes. That's, that's for me is the real joy. Yeah. Uh, and just the opportunity to meet all these different artists and colleagues and have a relationship with them is, you know, really fills me up. So, yeah. Could you describe and how fulfilling this has been for you in a way that it's like changed your life or like your personal life? Maybe it's all blurs together, work and personal life, but just like as a person, how you've grown or? Yeah, well, I think for better or for worse, uh, I am, the the boundaries between my personal yeah. life and my professional life yeah. uh, are very blurry. Yeah. But it is a life uh, that I really love. So I think for me, Personally, it's been, yeah, completely, thoroughly uh, fulfilling. It's been really particularly fulfilling as I think the work of the organization and with Fusebox has extended out into some of these other arenas, Mm -hmm. into real estate, thinking about real estate on a grassroots level that led to some, you know, work in community health that led to relationship with like folks at Dell children's hospital Mm -hmm. and the new uh, med school at UT and, you know, teachers um, that are teaching community health on a high school level. And that's been really exciting to know that we're not, that my network of collaborators and partners has extended out to like, you know, you know, legendary Chicana activists, developers, city hall, mm. doctors, artists, of course. It just feels like it's a really rich cross-section of the city, and mm-hmm. that's really exciting. Um, and then there is this larger community of curators and festival producers and artists all over that are exploring live performance Mm -hmm. and the live situation in all these different ways. And that has really fed me as well and continues to really excite me, both because um, so many of them are just wonderful, beautiful people and it's wonderful to get to know them, but then uh, continues to feed me artistically as I continue to kind of, I don't know, tinker with and chip away at my own understanding of what what it means to be working in performance and Mm -hmm. what that can do and all the different ways that that can live and that that can be expressed. Yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah. I'm wondering about some maybe interesting stories that you might have about how bringing some national or international artists here then influenced something in Austin that you saw kind of grow on its own. just seems kind of like it could be very inspiring to be exposed to so many different uh, people from all over. Yeah, I hope so. It's certainly certainly fed me in a really, I mean, like I said, when I first started, I was a working theater artist and I felt like, honestly, I'd been hitting my head against the same wall for like six years. Mm. (laughs) Like in like a five minute conversation with an artist from the UK, I was like, oh, oh my God, thank you. I can move on with my life now. (laughs) And what happened in that conversation? (laughs) Yeah, well, it was actually, it was a conversation about representation in a live space. And it was, I think it was something that had been kind of gnawing at me for a long time and about my own kind of relationship with theater. And I became really interested in, you know, this theatrical space as a space to be present. So that changes, I think, how you think about representation and not asking people to imagine they were somewhere else, but actually let's be present together. And um, Hmm. yeah, this artist, Ant Hampton, he's done a series of these really interesting, really intimate projects that he calls Auto Teatro. Um, They're often for like two people at a time. He did this piece Mm. called Etiquette um, that was for two people at a time in a cafe. And you would sign up. You could do it with someone that you knew or you could do it with a stranger. It didn't matter. You would just sign up for like a 30-minute slot. You'd show up at the cafe, someone there to guide you to this table. And there was two sets of headphones. uh, Mm -hmm. And you'd take a seat, put on some headphones. There's some simple props on the table. And then you start... You're being fed instructions over the headphones, and it's telling you, a voice is telling you what to do and also what to say to the other person. 
And I found that it like, oh, wow. That's the, so you were both the audience and the performer and it wasn't for anyone else. It was really for you and the person across the table from you. So you were both the actors and the performers. And I felt like it got at this, what was to me, this really essential thing about acting that you weren't, um, you were really just trying to relay what you heard in your ear to the person sitting there. You were just trying to communicate this in like a very simple, direct way. Yeah. Um, that was also very intimate and honest. And, uh, I just thought it got at something actually really essential about acting that I really loved. Um, you weren't trying to be something else. You were just trying to communicate and be present with this other person. Yeah. And it was very, and it was also awkward and like, you didn't know if you were doing it right. And so it was also like very vulnerable and very human and, uh, I did it with a, a friend that I had known for years, and I uh, I connected with this person in a way that like I had never connected with him. And so it was like you know it was very beautiful um, and playful, and the writing was really really nice. But yeah, it just kind of changed my understanding of you know what it meant to be present in a yeah. space with another person uh, when considering this art form. But we weren't really. I mean, in terms of this conversation about representation, we weren't really like up on a stage pretending mm. to be someone else. There was a fiction playing out, um, but we were also just like trying to communicate with one another. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so. I love the I love the sound of that, and it, and the way you're describing that, it makes me think of the Fusebox Festival because mm. it's like I've had experiences with performances or something where you're just interacting with another person like that at the Fusebox Festival. And I just, it's so exciting to Mm. me to be kind of have your world opened up or challenged or made to see something a different way, reframe things. I mean, I think there's so much potential with art and performance that way. It's really exciting for me. Thanks. Yeah. Well, you should check out Ant's work, Ant Hampton. Yeah. Uh, He's great. He was, uh, when we first brought Ant's work, he was part of this company called Roto Zaza, and we brought two of their shows. But since then, he's gone on to create a pretty interesting body of, of work just under his own name. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's really super interesting. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, there's obviously like a whole, I don't know, there was just like this whole world of artists that like, when I started, I knew nothing about. Yeah. So it's also just been this great kind of, for me, personal discovery process of getting to know some artists that I didn't know anything. And some of them are are relatively obscure, and some of them were even bigger names, but I just didn't, I didn't know yeah. who they were. Right. Uh, this Italian director, Romeo Castellucci, who um, is certainly in Europe, like a big star in this particular world, but I didn't know who he was. And getting to see his work was like, oh, just like mind-blowing. Mm. Um, he really works in a, in is sort of a master in creating this imagery on stage that just sears into your brain. Mm. Like, years, <laughs> years afterwards, it's like so vivid still wow. in your brain. It's amazing. Uh, so he's, and he comes to the States very seldom. So, oh. um, yeah, he's one of those like, yeah, someday it'd be amazing to bring yeah. uh, Romeo to Austin. But it's all, his work tends to be very expensive. And so but yeah. maybe that's one when I like think about, oh, someday we wanted to like do something on a larger scale. Oh, it'd yeah. be really interesting to bring his work. I'm just so excited that you, you're doing this and that you're bringing these people oh, here or thanks. even thinking about it or trying. Yeah, I mean, just, thanks. And it's also a moment to, to you know, really feature and support local artists. Um, yeah. That, you know, the, the way we, we think about the program, it's roughly one-third local, one-third national, one-third international. And mm-hmm. that's been really important to us that it, the festival is always a platform for local artists as well. Uh, to have their work seen by other writers and curators from around the world. But we also want to keep injecting new ideas and new thinking into the local community by bringing in artists from elsewhere. So it really is about that exchange, but not necessarily prioritizing one of those over the other. They're part of of this conversation. Mm Mm-hmm. There's one thing I'd read, you were talking about possibly like encountering people, ideas, or, or situations you don't know how to relate to. Oh, yeah. And then yeah, yeah. I was thinking, like, how do you then still engage with them and see it through yeah. into the unknown? Yeah, this is a great question. And I don't, I, I don't know the answer <laughs> to this, but it's something that interests me a great deal. And in some ways, I think it's, it's felt like part of 
the work that we've tried to do as a as an organization and as a festival is you know there's there's in every festival there's going to be stuff that like my suspicion is people will love it's easy to love but there's also always going to be work that we find challenging on some level perhaps because it's not immediately relatable but we think that there's like super exciting ideas within it mm-hmm. and i was interested in trying to create a festival culture that doesn't immediately shut off when you encounter something that you don't understand. Mm. Uh, because I think there's, I don't know, even just just speaking for myself personally, I find there's a great benefit <laughs> to that in, in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know the best way to do it. I think we, we keep playing around with that. But I do think it's important that our festival is also a home for work um, that is sometimes challenging, that is sometimes disorienting, or that you don't know what to do with. I think that that is how, maybe just speaking for myself, is how I have been able to grow as an artist. Yeah, Those are often projects that stick with me longer, uh, gives me something to chew on. Why did they do it? Oh, wow, what if it was that? What if it was that? And so it, it also becomes a place for us to be challenged, to challenge each other, and to perhaps crack open what we do know or understand. And so... Or what we think we know. What we think we know. <laughs> and I think there's... I don't know. I just think there's implication. I mean, if if the way that we evaluate art is entirely directly in relationship to how much we relate to it, I don't know if that's mm. like the the most meaningful way to assess art. <laughs> yeah. Like certainly I think art that allows us to relate to something in a meaningful way is that has great power and is one of the I think really amazing things that art can do and particularly performance can do. But I don't know that that's the only thing that it can do. In fact, I would say it's not the only thing that it can do. Yeah. Um, and so we just want to make sure that there is within our festival, there's space for really different kinds of expressions of yeah. art and that some of those uh, are perhaps harder to immediately relate to, um, but we're holding space for those artists to challenge things, to experiment, to tinker, you know, to help us as people, as artists, um, think about things in new ways mm-hmm. and give us things to chew on. And I love things that have mystery to them, things that I don't quite understand. And I would say even like in constructing the festival, that there are themes and there are threats. We don't really like start with, hey, this year's festival is about love, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, or, right. or about whatever, you know, mm-hmm. it, um, but there are threads throughout the festival. Um, there's clusters of projects that speak to each other in various ways, mm. but there's always a few projects that I'm not entirely sure about how they fit in. And I think that that is interesting. Yeah. I like that. I like that. I don't have the whole festival figured out because I think for me, it creates a certain kind of life to the festival that we're as an audience collectively kind of figuring out what this thing is and what these different projects mean to each other. Yeah. Um, I mean, it would be pretty controlling to kind of, yeah. manage every th- yeah, yeah. aspect of it. The, the 2018 <laughs> festival is about this, you know, like, no, that's not what it's, a, you know, we yeah. don't think about it in those terms. There are, it's a grouping of projects that we think are interesting next to each other. Mm-hmm. And some of those connections are perhaps really obvious and clear and we even highlight. Um, but some of the other connections are a bit more mysterious even to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yes. and I think that's fun. Like I learn from our audiences, like after the fact, like what our festivals are about, you know? <laughs> oh, that's so interesting how those two, they're like, oh yeah, I had no idea. <laughs> well, that just, again, like the macro micro, it makes me think of just like, you know, an abstract painter. Someone could walk up and be like, oh, I see this in your painting. And someone would be like, wow, I've never even thought of that. Totally, you know? totally. And so, yeah, I don't want to like control everything. I don't want to control people's understanding of what this thing is, mm-hmm. um, what this collection of things are together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's, always going to be you know somewhat different from person to person but i do think there is built into our thinking of each festival there is space for the unknown and for mystery and there's a certain piece of it that like we really don't know yeah um and i 
I think that's fun. <laughs> yeah. Does it feel kind of exciting and risky? Totally. <laughs> you know? Um, ah. Yeah. And of course you want everything to be great, but it's it's not ultimately about that. It's not really what this festival is about. It's, it is going back to, like, I would say our initial birthing of this festival that it was it's really about this exchange of ideas and there's you know lots of ideas to explore (laughs) yeah absolutely are there any a few maybe memorable moments or revelations you've had over the year that kind of make you feel like it's all all your hard work's been worth it i certainly think this year the addition of anna and betty to Mm. uh, our team um has been like just extraordinary and it's opened up so many things and they have already contributed so many ideas and great writing Mm. about what we're doing and are already helping to shape it moving forward. And so that, I mean, I've never really had an artistic team before. And so it was all on you. It was on me and then partner, partner with other organizations, but internally we haven't really had a team. And so that's felt um, just Extraordinary! It's mm-hmm. it's floored me, and um, I'm very appreciative to the two of them for just jumping in and yeah, let's go. Wonderful, yeah. But I'm thinking I'm thinking more in terms of like moments, maybe with some kind of artist or performance that you were kind of unsure about that was just like really ended up just blowing you away, or oh, I mean, yeah. just really shifted your views. Or um, I don't know. If this is exactly what. You're talking, but this is something that's fresh in my mind, and so I'll just share it. Yeah, yeah please. And just this this past weekend, uh, I was at uh, Steve Moore's house, local playwright and writer, mm. and he had a small gathering, maybe like 10 people at his house for this living room performance mm. uh, featuring uh, this writer and performer, Kristen Cosmos from Seattle. And there was also, a, it was her reading slash performing uh, excerpts from a new project of hers. And then there was her collaborator on the project, who's a visual artist, was sort of live drawing images on this overhead projector, and those images were being... uh, And it was unclear... There was not a direct, obvious correlation between the language and the words being spoken and mm-hmm. the visuals that you were looking at. And so it, at first it was a bit disorienting and, mm. uh, but I really loved what it did to my brain and that it gave my brain this really different kind of thing to be looking at. And of course you're trying to make your own connections between the visuals and the yeah. words in a way that I find very fun. But it also just made me realize that in the past couple of years, I think we've done perhaps less work that really foregrounds and features text in a prominent way. And it was just like so nice to be in a small intimate room with these two artists and have these words that were just like so smart and interesting and performed with such care paired with these kind of interesting, provocative images. Mm. It was just a, a, a really one of the more enjoyable evenings of art that I've had in, in, in a while. And it was very simple, you know, yeah. and felt very personable, but also kind of wild. And it felt mm. like, like an experiment of sorts. And yeah. they were still kind of trying to figure out how these things work together and what they meant. But yeah, that was really a great, rich experience. Yeah. It just makes me kind of jealous. I feel like, why am I not going to evenings of art at people's houses? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, why doesn't everyone yeah. do that? <laughs> we need to have more it. people doing that. I, <laughs> I mean, that just sounds so rich, especially if you're awesome. like having a dinner and totally. just, I mean, like eating with people, talking. Like, that's it why was pretty that's awesome. One of the yeah. best parts of being alive. Totally. Right? Yeah. So I guess we could um, talk about the festival this year, maybe just kind of, I don't know, tell me about this year and tell me how maybe you could tell anyone listening if they're hearing this before the festival happens, uh, when it's going to be and how they can get involved and all that. Yeah. Just kind of like, let's get the, the pitch for the festival, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. So the festival is April 18th through the 22nd. Uh, there's actually a big sort of fundraising dinner the night before on Tuesday the 17th. We call it Fusebox Eve and sort of officially kicks off the festival. And then the 18th through the 22nd, it's the festival is full on and uh, it happens at about 20, 22 different locations around the city. 
It's all free to attend. We have lunchtime talks with artists uh, every day, and we also serve free waffles. We call them waffle talks. <laughs> They've become very popular. Oh, nice. Uh, and so that's also a fun thing that you can get in. A, a lot of the shows at this point have technically sold out. Um, oh, really? Um, not all of them, but a lot of them. Okay. So we do offer advanced reservations. A lot of our audience members really wanted that, but they do get gobbled up. Um, but yeah. there's there's still a handful of shows that have tickets. Uh, in particular, um, the show by Mammalian Diving Reflex. Mm. is an incredible company from Toronto. Um, this is a new... Well, it's... It's it's actually not that new, but for us it's new. Yeah. Uh, it's a project called All the Sex I've Ever Had, and it's uh, an exploration of the sort of romantic and sex lives of the elderly. And mm. we'll be building it with uh, six local Austinites over the age of 65. And it's really looking at the history of their, their love lives, mm. uh, decade by decade. I saw this in Portland, and it was just like one of the most beautiful performances i've ever seen oh, wow. you know like all the things it was very touching and hilarious and tragic and, mm -hmm. and, and it's like life uh, yeah. and um so i'm really excited to see how that turns out and there's still quite a bit of capacity for that because it's in one of our larger venues mm -hmm. and i can't wait to see how this austin version of it turns out they've yeah. done it in cities all over the world we did a project with them several years ago called haircuts by children which is like exactly what it sounds like <laughs> okay. it's super awesome <laughs> and uh, basically work with fifth graders teach them about contemporary art and teach them how to cut hair and then they like take over a salon for two days mm. they run the front desk they take all the bookings and they cut people's hair wow. and so it becomes this kind of wonderful examination of what kids are capable of but also i think one of the things that the the company is really interested in is creating these social encounters between different populations that would ordinarily never be in a room together much less in a sort of intimate situation together mm -hmm. and uh, they've done a whole series of these projects that they call social acupuncture mm. and uh, a lot of them have involved kids and youth and teenagers um, and they're just it's some of the smartest work for youth anywhere um, but mm. this, this particular project is working with an older population which i also think mm. is is really awesome and also particularly awesome in in a city like austin which i think tends to have a really young kind of bias to it quite honestly yeah. i feel like so much of our cultural activities and life and everything here is really it's around a youthful culture which is in some ways wonderful but i do feel like sometimes we're not even really considering <laughs> yeah absolutely not yeah. so uh yeah it should be great so if if a show is sold out is there still a chance to be on a waiting list yep. or show up and yep. try to get there's, in? There's, uh, we hold back a few tickets for every show at the door. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and often, you know, some people won't show up. So, yeah, I, technically nothing is sold out. It's just a lot of the shows have, we've run out of advanced reservations. Yeah. But you can still, if there's someone you really want to get into, you can go to the venue the day of and, and try and get in. And yeah. there's probably a decent chance you'll get in. There's also, you know, we have this festival hub. Uh, that this year is it's right behind Saltillo Plaza. It's basically like a fourth and onion mm -hmm. and uh, there's going to be stuff going on there every night and it's some amazing programming. It's all mm. free and it has a larger capacity. You don't need reservations yeah. for that. Um, so I would also check that out every night and there's, there'll be f food and drink outside and a little beer garden that we're making. And then inside there'll be some really great programming. And you have like a, what is it called? Respect the reservation. How does yeah. that, how's that working? Cause that's kind of like saying it's free. Don't just hog a reservation yeah. and not show up. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So we wanted to create a system that, I mean, basically I think, you know, free reservations typically are kind of problematic because yeah, people make a lot of reservations and they don't think twice about not showing up or yeah. whatever. And so basically, I think most people will just view a free reservation as an option. Yeah, And exactly. what we were wanting was a commitment. <laughs> yeah. And so we wanted to design something that got it a commitment from people, but we didn't want money to come into it. And so basically, we have this system called Respect the Reservation and you get one warning. If you make a reservation of something and you flake out, we send you a nice note the next day. Hey, sorry, we missed you you here's the other things you have reservations for let us know if you're not going to make yeah. it if you do it again then we cancel the rest of your reservations and you lose your ability to make reservations mm. uh, just for that year you can still show up at the door and try and get in we also you, 
it's totally fine for people to make a reservation and then text us or email or call us and say, Hey, I'm not going to be able to make it. That's fine. That's actually, you know, totally acceptable. We mm-hmm. just didn't want people to do what you described was, hey, I'm just going to make reservations to everything and then may or may not show up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it was really about creating a, a sort of culture of respect around it. And there's a lot of people that want to see these shows. And so if you can't make it, let us know so we can let some other people in. What are just a few more of the things that you're most excited about seeing yourself this year? I mean, or have, you've you've seen everything then, right? Well, Is that how it works? Well, I've seen a lot of it. Okay. Um, there's several projects that no one has seen. Oh. And okay. so there's also just like some new stuff. Yeah. Uh, this company, uh, Wunderbaum from the Netherlands that we've brought twice before. And I just, I love them. They're amazing, but they're bringing this new project called the history of my stiffness. It should be a very entertaining, really funny project. I was boring Walter, who's one of their company members, his own sort of inability to move supplely. Uh, and they're exploring in a way they're really exploring Dutchness. Mm. Uh, and perhaps if you zoom out a little bit, they're exploring, Exploring this kind of rise in nationalism across Europe and even a little bit in our own country. Um, and also, like, what does it mean to be Dutch? They're having these conversations nationally. Mm-hmm. Like, what does it mean to be a good Dutch person? And uh, I think they were wanting to poke that a little bit yeah. and challenge that a little bit, but it turned into this sort of what I'm guessing is going to be a really entertaining uh, yeah. performance about his inability to move (laughs) and they're going to be working with other stiff people in Austin (laughs) who can't move very well. (laughs) And there will be wooden clogs. Uh, uh, Should be really good. And then there's this amazing performer, from Australia named Justin Shoulder, who's going to be performing at our hub on Friday night as part of this whole program that we're doing with the Museum of Human Achievement. It's going to be a wild night. It's going to be super crazy and really fun. Um, But this artist is named Justin Shoulder. He sort of floats between visual art, performing arts, and like club and queer club culture. Mm -hmm. And he creates these kind of fantastical, almost mythological creatures or beings mm-hmm. that he makes out of prosthetics and design and costume. And you mm. you sort of forget what you're looking at when you're watching him. And it, it's so wild mm. and fantastic and strange uh, that it's, it's pretty remarkable and unlike anything that I've seen uh, certainly recently. And so, uh, very excited about that. And there'll be a short, probably like a 20 minute piece. Selena Thompson is this artist from the UK. She has this installation called race cards. Uh, it's a thousand questions, Mm. a thousand questions about race, um, that she's written, handwritten on index cards. So there's a thousand index cards around the room. And then on, Saturday afternoon, she's going to be doing a durational reading of all thousand questions. Um, mm. I saw this in Bristol in the UK, and uh, it was just so, so awesome. And just like cracks open, uh, at least in my own mind, a lot of my own understandings and my and cracked open a lot of the conversations that I felt like I had been watching play out mm. online. And it was like, Oh no, what about this? What about this? What about this? And it's yeah. splintered and went off into all these different directions in a way that was just super powerful and interesting and rich and surprising and also very personal to her. And, um, Mm. She's also an amazing performer, so I'm really excited about yeah seeing her read these questions. She's yeah. like one of these performers that's like so present and so honest and so direct, but also really inviting. And she invites you into it, but she doesn't back off from what she's dealing mm. with and talking about. And it's just like, oh man, you're like a friggin' superhero. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm definitely not going to miss that because yeah. I've been thinking about that issue a lot. Too. Yeah, like, like just wanting to be cracked open and kind of yeah, it's what don't I know that I don't know? Totally. It's like, yeah, it's. It's an amazing piece for that. There's also um, a piece by this artist, Tanya El-Khoury, that is a a one-on-one encounter with a Syrian refugee. And you stick your arm through a hole in the gallery wall, and he draws this simple, kind of beautiful mural on your arm Hmm. while he's telling you his story. And so it's... Wow. And particularly, I feel like with a Syrian refugee, it it is a, a news story that we are familiar with, but that where we are located 
we have very little intimate relationship with. Yeah. And so it feels, it's just really powerful. And then it's really interesting because you also, so you have this direct immediate experience with this person, but then you start to see other people around the festival with these drawings on their arm. And mm. so you kind of, it's kind of like this weird club and, and weird signifier that, Oh, you've, you've experienced that too. And then, mm. you know, some people will wash it off or skin. So you start to see this image on people's arms. It's fading. And yeah. that also becomes kind of a, a metaphor perhaps for, for what's going on. Yeah. I definitely think though, that there could be people here that do understand what that person went Whoa. through too. Yeah, I think that's right. Cause that's yeah. kind of a realization I had in my last interview. I was speaking with the woman about that and I kind of, the way I was talking, I could kind of say, Oh, well in Austin, we're kind of insulated from that. And I feel like I'm, it's like, who am I speaking for really? You know? Yeah, and I, and yeah, she yeah. just kind of corrected me on that. And I thought, okay, I can't speak for everyone here. Cause I've had a totally different experience. I mean, there are, refugees and immigrants and here that have gone through hell. Totally. That's total. That's totally right. Yeah. Um, And I would also, I do feel like what's going on in Syria is a particular brand of hell that is like, like 10 million people or something. It's just insane. Yeah. Yeah. But you're right. There is, uh, there are lots of people in this community that have experienced much more than I have and and ever will, um, for sure. So it sounds like the festival is just really, I mean, I just, I'm, I'm super excited about it. I just think it's just like a celebration of creativity, human experience. I feel like it's going to be very rich and, well, well, and, um, I don't know. That's, that's perfect. Actually. I don't know either. <laughs> I guess we'll just have to see. Yeah. Well, I've taken enough of your time. Oh, I really thanks. appreciate hey, it. Hey, I really appreciate you. Thanks this for is... all your hard work. Yeah. Well, honor and a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thanks for making it happen. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to share it with your friends and colleagues and consider giving it a review on iTunes. That could help others find it and motivate them to give it a try. At austinarttalk.com, you can visit each episode's webpage to find links related to the relevant and interesting people, places, and things mentioned by each guest. And thanks to those who have reached out with encouragement and positive feedback. I really appreciate it. All the best to you and take care.